When it comes to their ETR, many companies are playing limbo. The question on their minds is, how low can you go? ETR, or effective tax rate, is a calculation that gives corporations a great idea as to just how well they're doing when it comes to their taxes. The formula for which, as a reminder, is total tax expense divided by pre-tax book income or income before income taxes, numbers which you get from the tax provision process. Lowering their ETR means lightening the load this liability takes on their financials. But how do companies do this, and what incentives are provided within the tax code to drive companies' effective tax rate down? On today's episode of The Fiona Show, Tax Provision Podcast, we're going to discuss how companies might achieve this, as well as how this can be fixed. We'll talk about the accounting rules versus the tax rules, and then we'll also touch on the Biden tax proposal and other ways the tax landscape can change going forward. And of course, since this is a provision podcast, we'll be looking at everything through a provision lens and talk about a few specific provision elements as well. To help us dig into these concepts and uncover how even the most profitable companies drive down their ETR, I'm going to turn it over to tax provision expert at Cross Border Solutions, Howard Telson, who will be chatting with Matthew Gardner, a senior fellow at the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP. Howard, you have the floor. Thank you, Matt DeMello. Really appreciate it. And I'm specifying that because today we have another Matthew on board. Today I'm speaking with Matthew Gardner. Matt is a senior fellow at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP, where he has worked for over 20 years. He previously served as ITEP's executive director from 2006 to 2016. Matt is a corporate tax expert and the primary author of ITEP's regular corporate studies on the tax habits of Fortune 500 corporations, as well as publications on international corporate tax avoidance and state tax policy. Matt has degrees from the University of Maryland and the University of Rochester. Matt, thank you so much for being here. We have a lot of ground to cover in so many different directions we could go in. But just to start, I'm curious, how did you get into the tax field and ultimately end up at ITEP? Well, uh, thanks very much for having me. And uh, that's a a great question. I actually started out with a professional interest in campaign finance reform. It seemed to me that the way elections were funded and the the way elections were conducted more generally in the U.S. really was having a negative effect on policy outcomes. You know, my hope was that I'd be able to end up working on that issue. Uh, As it happened, when I first came to D.C. almost a quarter century ago, I fell in with some policy folks who were working in the tax area, and I was just fascinated immediately. What was super clear to me was that whatever policy issue you care about, whatever buttons you want to push on the spending side, from education to healthcare to the environment, tax policy empirically seemed to be plugged in with that. That was the mechanism people were choosing. And so when a job opening became available at ITIP, it was a pretty easy call for me to try to get in on the on the ground floor with that. And it's been nothing but fascination ever since. Now, even more so than was the case at the end of the last millennium. Uh, tax policy is very much the tool folks use in Congress to try to achieve social policy outcomes, for better or for worse. It's been a really good window for me into policy evaluation, you know, just across the universe of, uh, of policy objectives we have. 
That, that's really great background and really appreciate that. And I think, you know, it's so important to note that, you know, people talk about how the government is spending their money all the time, obviously deficit and everything like that. But then how does the government raise money? And it's really through tax revenues is the primary way they do that. So it really makes sense. And, and it, that, that's great background. And could you just give us a little background on ITEP itself? Uh, what, what exactly does the organization do and, and what does your day-to-day kind of look like there? Sure. So ITEP, has two broad areas of expertise, I guess. One has to do with tax incidents. Uh, this question of who pays taxes, uh, including those direct land individuals and those that fall on businesses initially and subsequently are passed through to individuals. And the other is the corporate tax avoidance work that we're talking about today. ITEP was created in the late 70s in the wake of what many people thought of then and still think of now as one of the biggest informational failures of tax policy of the last 50 years, California's Proposition 13, which imposed some pretty tight limits on the growth of property taxes at the local level in California and taxable property value, both for properties owned by individuals and businesses. You know, it's created a real constraining box that California policymakers haven't been able to get out of ever since. It's making it hard for them to pay for local services. It it clearly creates huge inequities between like similar homeowners, between homeowners and businesses. Nobody likes it. And so in the wake of that policy failure, We created ITEP to try to make sure that when lawmakers or the public, in the case of Prop 13, were evaluating substantial policy changes to state and local tax systems, they'd have access to pro bono expertise to help them tease out the implications of various choices they might make, whether it has to do with the revenue implications or the fairness implications or just more generally, whether there are better policy alternatives out there, we'd be there to help folks tease these things out. Since then, we've developed some additional expertise, most notably in the early 1990s, we created what's called a micro-simulation tax model, which simulates the effect of current law at federal level and at the state and local level for income, sales, and property taxes on people at different income levels. And so whether it's something as straightforward as a proposal to increase the sales tax rate in Mississippi or what Congress enacted at the federal level, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act three years ago, we can give a sense both at the current level and forecasting 10 years going forward what's going to be the implications in terms of tax revenues and in terms of the taxes paid by people with different income levels. So it's a pretty potent uh, tool for figuring out the implications of whatever policy change lawmakers might be considering at any level. So that's been the lion's share of our work day to day for probably two decades. The corporate tax avoidance work is something we've been doing you know, pretty much the entire time, dating back to the early Reagan administration. It's important to know a thing that is dependent on any data that we're generating, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, in a minute. Corporate tax avoidance work is based entirely on disclosures made voluntarily by companies themselves. And this work goes back to 1981, actually, when in a very in a, in a set of circumstances that I think are broadly comparable to what's happened in the last couple of years, President Ronald Reagan pushed through a substantial 
reduction slash reform of corporate taxes, emphasizing dropping the rates and providing capital investment tax breaks, which resulted in many companies reporting substantial pre-tax income on their financial reports and yet not paying any income tax. And so we put out a number of reports in 81, 82, 83, chronicling what was happening, documenting the extent to which the biggest, most profitable Fortune 500 corporations were, in fact, paying a lot less than the statutory tax rate. And in many cases, were paying close to nothing. A couple of years later, this really started to grab people's attention. And in the end, uh, 1985, 1986-ish, the Reagan administration itself and, and President Reagan really reversed field on this and decided that it simply wasn't appropriate to have this be a consequence of their tax plan. So Reagan himself was instrumental in reversing fields, broadening the corporate tax base uh, and getting us back to a place where, at least for a little while, when companies reported positive income on their financial statements, they were also reporting positive income, apparently, on their tax forms and paying substantial taxes. We've never really stopped looking at this ever since because our concern even immediately after the 1986 tax reforms was that things could get worse. And very gradually, but very consistently, they have gotten worse over the past couple of decades. We're now in a place once again where there are pretty substantial differences between financial statement income and taxable income, basically all of which are things Congress has chosen to put in place. But, you know, but, but we're back in a place where, uh, where we're seeing uh, a lot of companies reporting big financial statement income and very little income tax. So we're doing exactly the same thing with exactly the same publicly available data on this front that we were 40 years ago and documenting pretty much the same results. That's an amazing background and really impressive Amazing how fundamental you guys were to, to the changes back in the Reagan administration. Obviously, what you guys are looking at today, it seems like history could be potentially repeating itself. But now I just want to circle back. I mean, there's so many different directions we could go to, but kind of what you were alluding to at the end of that answer there with regards to your work on corporate tax avoidance. And, and one of the big reasons, you know, you kind of got on our radar was, was a recent article that you published that really got a lot of steam in the press. And by a lot of steam, I mean, it was picked up by the Washington Post, USA Today, New York Times, as well as many other outlets. And the article you wrote was even referenced by President Biden in his first address to a joint session of Congress, which is pretty amazing. The article I'm referring to is entitled 55 Corporations Paid $0 in Federal Taxes on 2020 Profits. And I think its title you know, really says quite a bit. And basically, the article goes into the fact that many of the biggest corporations in America are showing zero or negative current federal income tax liability on their 2020 financial statement filings, so their 2020 10Ks. So these companies include household names like Nike, FedEx, Salesforce, Dish Network, and many, many others. And there, there's a lot to kind of unpack here. But first off, I just have to ask a very simple question, right? How do they do it? How do these profitable brands with billions, and that's billions with a B, of income before income taxes or pre-tax book income or accounting income end up paying no federal or, or as in U.S. current income tax on these profits? Sure. So a couple of things. First, and I think this is really pretty critical to start with, there's no indication whatsoever that the mechanisms these companies are using are anything other than completely legal. 
And in fact, to the extent we can identify these mechanisms, these tax reduction mechanisms, they tend to be provisions that Congress has, you know, in a pretty bipartisan way, said they're okay with. Having said that, and I'll circle back to that point, the second thing I'll say is that there's an awful lot we simply can't know about exactly what's happening on tax returns to get to these outcomes. And there's an obvious reason for that, which is that we don't get to see the tax return or either of the two pieces of information that appear on tax returns that we'd really love to see. We don't get to see taxable income and we don't get to see the bottom line income tax liability that each of these companies are paying each year. So these are both points that are worth unpacking. Since I'm on the second one, I'll just stick with that for a minute. I mean, if you think about uh, the timing of the release of these, uh, the financial reports that we're using, the 10K annual financial reports for companies that have calendar year fiscal years, which is most of them, these are coming out in February, maybe in March of 2021 for the 2020 fiscal year. And at that point, most of these companies, probably all of them, aren't going to have finalized their tax returns. This is their best estimate of what their income tax expense will end up being for the fiscal year. And now the number that we're using, current federal income tax for a company like Amazon or FedEx or Nike or any of the other ones you mentioned, is meant to be the company's best estimate of what their final tax bill will be for the current fiscal year at the federal level. And there's every reason to expect that in general, these estimates are going to be pretty good, but they are not straight off the tax returns. And in fact, they predate, in almost every case, the finalization of those tax returns. And you can say a similar story about the income measure. The SEC requires companies, multinationals, to report pre-tax income geographically, disaggregating U.S. income and foreign income in one big bucket of foreign income. Um, but U.S. pre-tax income, as reported on financial statements, is almost certainly never the same as what's showing up for taxable income on the tax forms. So that's a difficulty as well. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. You mentioned just now, pre-tax book income versus taxable income. And we've spoken about this a little bit on the guest itself. But basically, that distinction is, is pre-tax book income is calculated under the accounting rules, while taxable income is calculated under the tax rules. And the issue you mentioned with financial statements is they disclose pre-tax book income, and then they disclose various things around the tax provision, which is the name of the, of the podcast and you know much of what we talk about here. But what they don't disclose is taxable income. 
So basically, you know, you start a, the way to calculate tax income like for a corporation is you start a pre-tax income, and then you have what's called book to tax adjustments. You know, as, as Matt knows, just for more of the listeners out there, you have book to tax adjustments, and then you get down to a taxable income number. And they don't show all this detail on financial statements on Form 10K or, or 10Q uh, in the U.S. So that's one point to mention. And the other point to mention, when you see the tax expense on the financial statement, companies haven't filed their tax returns yet, which is you know, almost always true because tax returns are due. Um, it's the same dates as individual due dates. So three and a half months after year end or nine and a half months if you're on extension. So most companies file extensions and they end up filing tax returns at their calendar year company generally in the summer. So by October 15th, but usually they'll file in the summer. So basically they're filing their financial statement just a couple months after year end, you know, in that February timeframe, their calendar year end. And then their tax returns filed several months later in the summer. So that tax provision, the actual tax number on the financial statements is really just an estimate. And to Matt's point, usually that estimate doesn't change that much in a material way to the tax return, because if it does, then you need to run through what's called a return to provision to true up that amount on the next year's financial statement if it's not material. And if it is material, you could potentially need to restate your financials. Just to clarify what Matt is saying, basically he's saying that the data you have on the financial statement to kind of analyze what's going on here and how companies are reducing their effective tax rate and their tax expense, while it's not perfect, it's generally pretty good because it can't be that far off from the ultimate tax return or else it's going to result in a lot of pain for a company. But the information isn't complete, right? We don't have all the information that's on a tax return in a financial statement. So it does take kind of some intuition and some understanding on what's going on. And you're never going to have kind of a complete tax picture just from a financial statement, but but it does give you quite a bit. So I'll, I'll kick it back over to you, Matt. Apologies. No, no, no. Very, uh, very helpful. Not sure where to go next. With we this. talked a little bit about what we're getting out of a financial statement, but what are some of the metrics that companies are using to kind of drive down their current effective tax rate? And by current effective tax rate, I mean their current year tax expense divided by their accounting income. Right. And I'm differentiating that from total effective tax rate, which, which takes into account current and deferred taxes. So this is more of the current year looking at, you know, what's driving down their cash tax, what's driving down their current year effective tax rate. What are what are a couple of the ways that you're seeing that companies are doing that? There's a short list of tax provisions that we know with air quotes around it are driving down the current federal tax provision. In particular, uh, accelerated depreciation, the ability to rapidly write off capital investments. R&D tax credits tend to crop up a fair amount. Other tax credits uh, more generically as well. Stock-based compensation is something that appears to be playing a material role. The reason, those are the first three that come to mind. The reason I put air quotes around know these things is that the structure of the income tax note, the, the part of the 10K from which all this information comes, as you know, is it's not really geared towards explaining the composition of current tax. It's geared towards explaining variation in worldwide income tax expense. You know, the whole the whole conceit of the income tax provision and in particular the reconciliation uh, that's embedded in the income tax provision is to construct a counterfactual. What would happen if you multiplied worldwide pre-tax income by 21%? That's sort of a hypothetical what they probably should have as an income tax expense. Let's compare that to total worldwide income tax expense, current and deferred, and explain those differences. Now, that's, you know, when we say we know 
that Amazon or Netflix or any of these other companies are reducing their current federal income taxes using stock-based compensation or R&D credits or uh, accelerated depreciation tax credits, we're, we're usually basing that information entirely on what we're getting from the reconciliation. And there's a problem with that, which is that take a company like uh, Amazon, this is a pretty good example, I guess. What we know from the reconciliation, the income tax reconciliation about Amazon is that in 2020, the company reduced its worldwide income tax provision by $639 million using tax credits. We can infer from other information we find in the text of the income tax notes that a big chunk of that was federal R&D tax credits. But the reconciliation itself does not specify this. Some, a big chunk of that could be foreign, could be state, uh, and even at the federal level, it could be unspecified tax credits other than R&D that they're just not telling us about. The standard of disclosure in the income tax notes simply is not geared toward helping us understand, you know, at a, at a very micro level, what's driving current federal income tax, or for that matter, current state income tax. You know, you have to take this with a pretty huge grain of salt. With that really, really, really long caveat, I'll return to what I said a minute ago, which is that it sure looks like R&D tax credits are pretty big as a permanent difference. It sure looks like stock-based compensation is a big driver. And it's pretty clearly the case that capital investment tax breaks, uh, the newfound capacity of companies to immediately expense most capital investments, for example, these three things are big drivers of the divergence between the 21% tax rate companies in theory ought to be paying and the much lower tax rates they appear to be paying. That, that's a really great context. And I just want to unpack a couple of things you said there. So one, when, when you talk about the rate reconciliation, and actually on this podcast, we have a whole separate episode kind of dedicated to discussing the rate reconciliation, all the components of it. But you, you're right, in, in, a, in a 10K or a 10Q or, or really any financial statement, the rate rec is extremely broad and they companies have the ability to lump together items that aren't the most material into a single line item. And, you know, there's netting that occurs and it becomes very difficult to dissect exactly what's driving the effective tax rate because you just don't have that much detail. So you really only see kind of the largest drivers, the most material things. And to your other point, the effective tax rate that's talked about in the financial statements and the one that the rate reconciliation is all about is the total effective tax rate, which takes into account current tax and deferred tax. So, so basically, you know, in the rate reconciliation, it's great to see, you know, really material permanent differences. You could see state tax expense. You could see what the foreign rates are doing to your tax rate, if it's driving up or down, you know, down if you're in low tax jurisdictions, up if you're potentially in higher tax jurisdictions in the U.S., but it's, you don't see timing differences. So one of the items you mentioned, uh, bonus depreciation, which is a huge benefit to companies driving down their cash tax liability for the year, you don't see in a rate reconciliation. So, so then you kind of have to think, okay, if I want to learn about kind of capital investment and how that's impacting a company, then you kind of have to go to their deferred tax roll forward, which once again, isn't that detailed in a financial statement. And once again, they're lumping things in and out. And you kind of need to look at that and see, okay, do they have a huge deferred tax liability in that section? Because that would mean that they're taking a big benefit up front. And then eventually the accounting and tax is going to flip and they'll have to pay for it at a later date. So I just wanted to specify a couple of things there. The other things are just coming back to a couple other ones you mentioned, R&D credit, um, which I'll just quickly plug. We have another podcast uh, Cross Border does on R&D credit. 
Um, this is, you know, obviously a dollar for dollar reduction in tax liability that is driving down both your total ETR and it's also impacting your cash tax, right? So it's kind of that dual impact. And stock comp, you know, I think the stock comp that we're talking about mostly is uh, non-qualified stock options, which which also have kind of this dual impact on your, your cash tax uh, and your total tax expense, and then also just your kind of current tax expense. And the reason why that is for, for non-quals, because of the kind of the weird differences between the book rules and the tax rules. So the book rules are kind of expensing a portion of these options over the life of the option, while the tax rules are essentially allowing companies to deduct the full boat of the cost of the option once they're exercised and once that income is picked up by the employee. So generally what will happen is you'll have this uh, deferred tax asset, you know, for now that we're getting into more of the provision concepts, you'll have this deferred tax asset that's kind of created over the life of this uh, non-qualified stock option. And then eventually, once that option is eventually exercised by an employee, the employee will pick up the income, the company will get the deduction in the same amount, the deferred tax asset will completely release. And then there's something called an excess tax benefit, which is the excess of your tax deduction over your accounting expense that you've had to date, which is almost always the case that the tax deduction ends up being higher than the accounting expense. So I just wanted to give some color there around a couple items that Matt mentioned. And I do have a question. Um, and we could focus on on any of the provisions, uh, whatever whatever your preference is. But we talked about kind of how they're working today. The tax depreciation, getting accelerated depreciation right now. You could depreciate a hundred percent. You know, expense a hundred percent of certain assets in the first year that you that you purchase them for tax purposes, which is very different than accounting purposes, which you have to kind of expense it over the life, the useful life of an asset. We talked about stock comp a little bit and R and D credit. How would you change kind of these provisions? And we could start with any of them, but what would you kind of do to, you know, make it more fair or level the playing field? Would you kind of mirror the accounting treatment or come up with a completely different system? Any thoughts there? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think, a, uh, as you hinted a minute ago, a sensible, rebuttable presumption is that there ought to be closer conformity between book and tax treatment. And in particular, the gap treatment of uh, the general accounting, the general accounting principles treatment of capital expenses, where you gradually write off the expense of capital investments over the lifetime of those capital assets, seems like a pretty straightforward goal to shoot for. As you hinted a minute ago, the sensible rebuttable presumption is that the book and tax treatment for these provisions ought to be pretty similar. And I think capital investments are a great place to start there. The rebuttable presumption with the tax treatment of capital investments ought to be that they're written off gradually over the lifetime of the capital investment. If you're making an investment in machinery that lasts 25 years, then for tax purposes, as well as financial statement purposes, the sensible thing would be to write off that expense gradually over the 25 years. Doing so would certainly be within the computational uh, abilities of the companies in question, right? I mean, if they're already doing it for financial statement purposes, certainly they can do it for tax purposes as well. We don't do it that way because, as I hinted a little while ago, uh, Congress has, in a bipartisan way, expressed the belief that allowing companies to write off these expenses much more quickly and now immediately will encourage them to invest more in capital than they otherwise would, an assertion that has not really been proven at all, I'd say. 
But, you know, for better or for worse, we have this timing advance where companies are writing these investments off much more quickly than they actually wear out. So I think returning to financial statement treatment, writing these things off as they wear out would be a very sensible approach. You know, that's not where we are right now politically. And I guess we can return to the politics of it all. But, but you know, the thing I'll say is just that every president for the last two decades, you know, Biden exception, uh, accepted, uh, has basically blessed the idea of providing tax benefits for accelerated depreciation. So it's not it's not something that we're we're seeing any real momentum towards changing. But that's where I'd start with depreciation is simply get into a place where the treatment of capital investments for tax purposes more accurately mirrors what's happening in the real world, how quickly these capital assets are wearing out. Now, that's really helpful context. And I always found it interesting because for book purposes, accounting purposes, when we say book, we always refer to accounting. It does seem logical, right? I mean, when you have an asset and you're expensing an asset, you expense it over its useful life. And how you come up with that useful life is an exercise in and of itself. And it's not an exact science, but it is logical. You know, I think to most people that an asset has a certain useful life, it could be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you get to take a benefit, you know, on your uh, it would, a benefit for tax or an expense for books. And you would take that expense over over the life of that asset, right, to correspond with the with how long that asset is, is giving you value, which is really kind of a cornerstone of how the accounting rules work is they, they try to mirror uh, revenue with expense and they try to match them. And that's kind of what how the depreciation rules work for accounting is as that piece of equipment or that machinery or whatever it may be is generating revenue and providing the company a benefit, they're going to mirror that timeline on the expense side and match the expense with the, with the revenue. On the tax side, it's completely different, right? They don't think about this concept of matching, at least with regards to depreciation. They're thinking more about the incentive. And as Matt alluded to, the theory which Matt notes is, is not really proven, but the theory is that if Congress and the government is incenting companies to invest more by giving a 100% deduction for a piece of equipment purchased, then companies will do so. They will buy more equipment and they will invest in the, in the U.S. economy. So, so that's kind of the theory that's been underlying this provision for, as, as Matt noted, a number of years. So it will be interesting if that ever changes. But as Matt noted, it doesn't seem to have much headway given it's it's just been around for a long time. And it seems sort of logical, I think, at least to most people, even if unproven, you know, that concept of incenting companies to invest in the U.S. will be helpful. Although, as, as Matt mentioned, you know, that's not necessarily 100% the case. Uh, so shifting gears off of depreciation, which is... I think a topic we could talk about for a long time. Just thinking about stock compensation a little bit, the accounting rules are, are a bit wonky on stock compensation. I kind of alluded to, you know, how non-quals are, are treated before. You kind of value an option and then you, you take a portion of the expense over the life of the option for accounting. Well, for tax, it's a bit more straightforward in that you don't get any deduction for a corporation until that option, that non-qualified stock option is exercised or you know, potentially it's forfeited, but let's just go in the, in the situation where it's exercised. And then at that point, when it's exercised, you'd get a deduction equal to the amount of income that an employee is taking in. So an employee, when they exercise the option, they would have some income on a W-2 or a 1099, and they would report that income on their personal tax return, and they would pay a tax on it, right? So a corporation kind of gets the inverse 
of that as a deduction. So it sort of equals out. I, I guess in terms of that provision, would you be more inclined to change it to mirror more of the book rules in kind of saying, imputing kind of a value of the option at the beginning and then taking a portion over time as opposed to putting it all on the back end when it's exercised? Is that kind of how you look at it more? Uh, yeah, I think that's a uh, broadly a sensible way of thinking about it. And if you look at, you know, there have been a couple of legislative proposals in the past decade designed to deal with this. Carl Levin and, and John McCain actually were, were two uh, folks in the Senate who had uh, ideas about this. What, what you just said is sort of the broad sweep of what they wanted to do to get closer to the point where the corporate deduction for stock options is kind of similar to the book expense that's showing up on the financial statement and to do it to make these deductions at the same time for tax purposes that they're recorded on the financial statement. So right now you're in a situation, and as you noted, where we're sort of, it's all driven by when the options are exercised. And so you can get these, depending on the behavior of the folks holding the options, you get these big C-level changes in, in, uh, in reported current tax expense based on what individual employees of the company are doing. So the Levin McCain approach, you know, like uh, to me seems broadly sensible of getting back to a place where book and tax income are moving a little more in tandem with each other. I mean, the interesting difference to me, between this and the depreciation issue is that obviously when you make capital investments, clearly a good outcome in itself, clearly something we want to encourage, that's unquestionably a cash expense by the company, something that ought to be deductible at some time, whether you do it immediately or as I suggested a minute ago over the life of the asset is a separate question. But when you're dealing with stock options, these don't typically require a cash expense by the company at all. I mean, it, it affects their bottom line in a way that's a little harder to qualify, but it's certainly not the same thing from a cash outflow perspective as writing a check for salary, as you typically will with employees. Uh, it's just not the same expense. And Right now, we're essentially allowing companies to pretend that it is a cash expense in the same way. So I, th I think um, recognizing that would be a helpful step as well. That's a really, really interesting point. And honestly, I haven't quite thought about it in those terms, but basically you're saying that when you buy an asset, you are spending cash on that asset. And therefore, at some point in, in the life of a company, in the life of the asset, you should get a deduction for that. However, on the stock comp side, you're granting these options. And then, you know, if you're a public company, your stock price all of a sudden shoots up for whatever reason that may be. And then, you know, an employee exercises it. And then all of a sudden you get a deduction for something that kind of happened within the stock market that you didn't really spend any cash on. So that is a really interesting perspective. And I think a useful one for the conversation. I just wanted to point that out. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue. That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our 
software technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. There are other weird consequences as well of, you mentioned the stock market, there are other weird consequences of companies getting this tax benefit when the options are exercised, which is that a lot depends, that the value of the deduction depends on the exercise price. And so when companies that issue stock options early on, like Facebook, for example, a huge beneficiary of the stock option tax break, that when the stock price ends up going up, it's these companies that are doing really well that really cash in on the tax deduction. Whereas if a company's stock isn't going up, they don't get the tax deduction. So it's weirdly it's got an odd outcome in that the biggest tax benefits almost automatically goes to the companies that are most profitable. And it's basically useless to a company that isn't turning a profit. There are Obviously, other reasons to value stock options from the perspective of the company. I think a lot of the companies that have gone big on stock options were doing it precisely because they didn't have the cash to pay the workers. I think arguably that's why Facebook and Amazon and a lot of the tech companies that weren't turning a profit earlier on chose to go this way. That coupled with the fact that the tax rules for a long time basically encouraged companies to pay their execs and stock options because of the million dollar cap on deductible salary. But still, it's just not the same expense. So yeah, same broad remedy applies. We ought to get to a place where the financial statement deduction and the tax deduction are working a little bit more in tandem than they are right now. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely a fair point. I think you know your point about the fact that you know, when a company is doing well and their stock price is shooting up, all the employees are winning. And then the company basically is winning on twofold. One, obviously, the stock is doing well. So the employees in the company who are incentivized via stock compensation are very happy. And then from a corporate tax perspective, they get a nice benefit, too, of driving down both their effective tax rate and their cash tax. So it's really becomes a win-win. And like you said, for the most successful companies who may not really need that deduction the most. So it's a very interesting point. I just want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, we talked about some of the things that companies are doing to drive down their cash tax expense, to drive down their effective tax rate. I just want to kind of look forward a little bit. And we talked about some of those those potential remedies as well with kind of aligning more of the tax to the accounting treatment, which I think seems logical for a lot of people. But I want to shift over as to what's kind of on the table right now, particularly with the Biden tax plan. Obviously, we only have kind of broad strokes on what they're proposing right now. But we do know that Biden is looking to increase the corporate tax rate. You know, right now it's at 21%. Hopes are to get it up to 28%. We'll see, you know, where that lands. It could be a little bit less. But as of now, the kind of Biden blueprint and the green book that was released a few days ago kind of show it as going to 28%. They're talking about a new 15% minimum tax on certain really large companies' uh, book income. They're talking about eliminating the ITI or the foreign-derived intangible income benefit, where companies are getting a benefit for having, for really making sales and having IP in kind of foreign countries, which is really kind of against what their their principles are and what they're looking to do. They're talking about replacing BEAT with a much broader kind of provision called SHIELD, which we could 
get into kind of on another episode, and then increasing the guilty rate from 10.5% to potentially 21% with some potentially minor relief as well, potentially up to 25%. And then one thing that's worrying a lot of companies is, is turning guilty from provision where you can net out losses and income between controlled foreign corporations to having a country by country calculation where the netting uh, may not be as relevant. A lot of this is still unclear on what direction it'll exactly go to. We don't have all the details, but it does seem like, you know, the Biden administration in general is looking to try to even the playing field a bit, obviously raising tax revenue to fund their infrastructure plan, just kind of, and we had a whole podcast kind of dedicated to the Biden tax plan um, previously, but just wanted to get your thoughts on, on what you're seeing in your position. And if you think this Biden tax plan is a good start and, you know, if anything kind of jumps out there. Very good question. I mean, just as an initial macro observation, I've been watching this issue and the way presidents and congressional leaders talk about it for an awful long time. What we've seen for almost all of this time is that the rebuttable presumption is that our corporate taxes just ought to be lower than they are full stop that the mechanism should be cutting the corporate tax rate and asking questions later. I think that's what we saw primarily with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago. You know, everyone has known for decades that what we were going to see as part of any corporate tax reform was getting the rate down from 35%, which it had been since 1993, to something lower. And the question was, how low and what were you going to do to broaden the base in exchange for that? And TCGA, I, I think it's fair to say, did the easy part by dropping the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21, but didn't really do much of anything to curb tax avoidance domestically and may have enabled it internationally. So in that setting, to me, anything that makes revenue raising and base broadening the focal point is just a sea level change. And, and that is what we're seeing from Biden directionally in terms of emphasis and in terms of mechanisms. You know, to me, whether you're uh, whether it's 2017 with TCGA or right now, the emphasis ought to be looking at the base first and then looking at the tax rate. And the worst thing you could say about the Biden plan is that you could say he's leading with the rate by saying, I'm going to knock the rate back, you know, take back half of what got done in 2017 and go from 21 to 28. In terms of base broadening, there's not necessarily as much as I would like to see directly there as well. You alluded to this minimum tax idea, um, you know, in lieu of paring back to, you know, taking a hard look at the R&D tax credit, taking a hard look at the effectiveness of accelerated depreciation. What Biden would do instead is to minimize the net impact of these provisions. So he's not directly paring back the ability to use stock option tax breaks or depreciation tax breaks. He would, through this minimum tax of 15% on book income, effectively reduce the net benefit from all these still existing tax provisions. To me, that's a heck of a lot better than doing nothing at all. It isn't going to solve any complexity-related problems that you're concerned about, and, and in some cases might make them worse, uh, and it isn't going to take away provisions that are simply ineffective. The sole exception to that is the Biden administration has signaled that they want to take a real hard line on fossil fuel tax incentives, You know, basically taking away tax incentives that are strictly limited 
to the production of uh, fossil fuels, which I think is a, a helpful step forward. But in general, there's not a lot of direct base broadening there domestically. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Internationally, I think, you know, again, a real step forward. His plan for offshore profits would not result in taxing everything at the same rate as under the U.S. Domestically, he wants to return to 28 percent. Abroad, we'd be looking at 21 percent. But it's a heck of a lot better than, than what we're looking at right now. So it's a step forward. Anyway, yeah. So from 35,000 feet up, that's what I'd say is we're seeing a shift away from this sort of almost blind belief that the goal ought to be to cut corporate taxes by any means necessary and a step toward getting a more sustainable corporate tax by through a combination of increasing the rate and having these backstop taxes, both domestically and abroad. I think that'll get us closer if it's enacted in something resembling the form Biden has proposed it. It'll get us closer to a place where we have a sustainable tax that treats different industries, different profitable companies a little more fairly. That, that makes sense. And, and that's great context. And, and you know, one thing that's interesting, uh, you were talking a little bit about the, the minimum tax, which is Right now, proposed to be 15% on your pre-tax book income, on your financial statement income. It only applies to the largest of the largest companies, right? So I, I think I saw one estimate that it could only apply to about 50 companies or so in the U.S. So it seems like a, a sensible provision as kind of a backstop to potential you know, abuse of some of the provisions we were talking about earlier. Um, but the question is, you know, how how many companies will it actually apply to? How broad will its kind of reach be? So that'll be kind of something we'll have to stay tuned with. I just want to touch on one or two more things before we wrap and just kind of shifting back to more of a pure kind of provision concept, which I've seen you talk about a little bit in some of your work on certain tax positions or or unrecognized tax benefits. These are kind of disclosures that companies make to say that they're in a tax position that is not more likely than not, or is not above a 50% probability of success upon a challenge from an audit. So if they included that position on a tax return, like a federal tax return uh, submitted to the IRS, they do not have more than a 50% chance of kind of success if the IRS were to audit them. So these are items that companies need to identify on their financial statements. And the reason they, they identify it and they disclose it and they're even kind of allowed to include them is basically because the standard for including a number, you know, such as a deduction on the financial statements is different than the tax return. Basically, a tax return generally requires you to have a substantial authority standard or basically a 40% probability of success on an audit. If you include some kind of deduction or if you don't include some kind of income, you, need, you would need to have at least a 40% chance of probability of success on an audit to include on a tax return. But on the financial statements, included in your tax provision, you need a higher standard. You need to get up to that 50% then more likely than not standard. And if not, if you're kind of somewhere in between those two, then generally you accrue this uncertain tax position, a liability to kind of account for this gap. So, so do you think this is useful to financial statement users? Do you think that the IRS and other taxing authorities should be using this information more to their advantage to kind of go after companies on audit? Yeah, I mean, I think the broad intent of the UTB provision was to give shareholders, actual and potential shareholders, a broad indicator of the extent to which corporate leaders were living on the edge, you know, sort of living in that gray area between what's legal and, and what's not. It can be, in theory, a measure of the ethics 
of, of business leaders. There are limitations to it, of course, as with um, as with all the other income tax elements of the income tax provision. It's a worldwide thing. You know, Apple's uncertain tax benefits skyrocketed when the EU decided they owed them more than something like ten billion dollars of income taxes, and you know, you couldn't really pinpoint the amount of domestic tax avoidance companies were doing. But I think it's absolutely a helpful, broad measure of both, you know, the, the things that are required to be disclosed. And apologies if I'm just telling you what people have already heard in prior episodes. But no, please, this know, is helpful. What, what, what I find valuable is not just the aggregate picture. Here's the cumulative pile of things we claim that probably aren't going to get away with uh, year to year, but also the incremental changes. So we've noted in particular the amount of reductions in UGBs that have happened in the last couple of years that have been due to the statute of limitations running out. That appears on its face to reflect the unwillingness or inability of tax authorities to enforce their own laws. You know, and I think that's true because as I understand it, the evaluation of the UGB is strictly about its legal position, not whether or not uh, the IRS or other tax authorities are actually going to go out and enforce the law, but just what the law says. So it really is a measure of the extent to which companies are living in these gray areas of the law, the, the extent to which they're willing to push things. Um, you know, I, I think there are, there are, you can say things the other way. For example, just the act of being a multinational corporation probably encourages the creation of more UTBs, right? Because you're not just, it's not just a question of one country's laws. It's a question of the laws of every country in which you do business. And right now, it's a question of the intersection of the laws that different countries have. So it doesn't have to be unambiguously a measure of how ethically challenged a company's leaders are. But I think in general, it is a pretty good measure. Uh, it's a pretty good indicator that something's going on that shareholders ought to be concerned about. And yes, that tax authorities ought to be concerned about. My hope, of course, would be that the IRS state tax authorities, international tax authorities, they don't need a UTB disclosure to tell them there's something going on, that they've already got a, got a handle on this. And in fact, when a lot of the big UTBs appear, it's precisely because tax authorities have, have told them right. <laughs> that, that, they, that they are uncertain. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a real, it's way better than not knowing anything at all about this gray area in the tax law. You know, one thing I'll add and it's important. I'm certainly not trying to defend uh, the companies involved, but there's no black or white in tax law. This big gray area between what's clearly allowed and what's clearly not, that's not entirely because of behavior of companies. As often as not, it can be because of the inadequacies of the laws Congress has created. And I think you can make a pretty good case that UTBs are created recently, have been created in part because of the really, sorry, crap job that Congress did in enacting the Tax Cuts and Job Act as quickly and as opaquely as they did. If you don't know legislative intent, if the law itself isn't fully specified, you know, these companies can have to wait a couple of years to even find out what they're supposed to do, what Congress wanted them to do. And that, I think, can result in the creation of UTVs. Uh, so that's, I think, a, an important limit on the power of UTVs in describing unethical behavior. So th that's important to note as well. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. The fact that you know, why can't these companies get to more likely than not, you know, more than 50% or, or a substantial authority? And how do they kind of tread the line in between those or 
above or below. And the reason is that the tax law isn't very clear cut and it's not easy to determine whether or not a position necessarily is sustainable or is, you know, what standard it meets. And that's because of the opaqueness of the law and of the regulations. That's really helpful. And just to give one kind of example and to mention a sister podcast is one of the most common uncertain tax positions is transfer pricing. And, you know, that, that's for the reasons that Matt just kind of alluded to is because these financial statements are looking at the worldwide position of a company and transfer pricing is kind of the intersection of different countries' rules and how they collide. And what that ends up resulting in is often an uncertain tax position due to there not being necessarily clarity on how a certain country will treat a certain intercompany transaction uh, between entities in the structure. So that's often transfer pricing becomes a, is a very common uncertain tax position. And, you know, we have a whole podcast dedicated to the transfer pricing realm. So finally, we do have a few lightning round questions, uh, if you're game for it, Matt. And these are just short, kind of quick hit questions, um, which you could just give, you know, kind of a quick answer, little to no explanation. Obviously, we could dig more into any of these, but, you know, these can be just kind of a, a one or two word answer. So, so I'll jump right in. So one, if you had a magic wand, what is the one tax rule you would remove or change? Depreciation. Accelerated depreciation. Get closer to treating capital investments for tax purposes the same way we do for financial statement purposes. Gotcha. And what's the one thing you wish you could get from financial statements that you cannot currently? Uh, better geographic detail on the location of income and tax. Uh, right now, there are, every now and then you see companies disclose that their foreign income and their foreign tax is like split between Germany and the Isle of Jersey or one of these small tax haven jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fat, fascinating and super revealing information. We should know that more. And will we have tax reform in 2021? Man, I, I threw <laughs> away my crystal ball in 2016. What, uh, what we will have is, for sure, is a more informed debate and a debate that's more about sustainability and revenue raising. That's the clear value add this year. I don't have a whole lot of confidence that we're going to see anything resembling what President Biden has proposed, but we're going to see discussion of whether it's a good idea or a bad. And I think that's a real value add. Hmm. And finally, what will the corporate tax rate be in 2022 if you were a betting man? 24. 24- Five percent would be my guess. Yeah, that, that's what seems like a lot of people think that uh, we could find maybe some common ground at 25. So I think that it's a good uh, it's a good bet for now. Well, Matt, I really want to thank you for your time. I, I think it was a great discussion. I really appreciate all your insight. And you know, hopefully we can do a part two at some point in the future. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We would like to thank 
Howard, and Matthew for joining us on today's show. We'd like to thank everyone at home for joining us. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next week. Music.